covenant, a kind of solemn agreement that God makes in this book. Today we want to pick back up with the storyline of Genesis. I'd like to pray for us first that the Holy Spirit would speak and use His Word in our lives. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank You for Your written revelation, Your living and active Word, this inspired Word. We pray, Spirit of God, You would you would speak again, as it were, through what you've already spoken in your word. You would speak to our hearts today. You would grant us the gift of illumination. You would open the, the eyes of our hearts to see what you want us to see, understand what you want us to understand, and go away from here affected by your word and the grace of God in Christ. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you, Mindy, so much. I want you to imagine with me something this afternoon. Imagine that we are a vast group of people gathered in a place called Moab down by the Dead Sea. Our fathers and mothers were delivered out of slavery in Egypt. God wonderfully, powerfully redeemed them out of slavery and promised them a land. But in routes, they, they grumbled. They rebelled against God in unbelief. And God made our fathers and mothers wander in the wilderness until that unbelieving generation had passed away. And now here we are, a new generation, in the plains of Moab, ready to invade that promised land called Canaan. But the land of Canaan is, is occupied by Canaanites. And they're not very friendly to us. They're not actually welcoming us into their land right now. It's a rather frightening situation for us. God says he's going to remove them because of their sin, but they're a powerful people. And we're just this nomadic mass. We're good at wandering in the wilderness. We're good hikers. We're not a lean, mean fighting machine. We're a rather weak, unimpressive people left to ourselves, faced with this frightening reality of invading this land God had promised. We need to know, will God really bring us into this land He has promised? Will He do it? And that's the fundamental question before us. Can we trust God's promises to bring us safely home? That's the situation of the first recipients of this book called Genesis. That's their situation. And friends, it's not, it's not that much different than our situation. It's not that much different. If you're a Christian, you are part of a people who are also banking their lives on the promises of God. Promises in Jesus to forgive your sins, to reconcile you to God right now once and for all. And promises in Jesus to bring you into a land. A land. A, an ultimate promised land. A, a new heavens and a new earth ultimately when this entire world is renewed. You are heading to a land based on God's promises. And if you're not a Christian here, we invite you to trust those promises with us right now. But for the Christian, your situation is like that of the first recipients of this book, banking on promises, heading toward a promised land, facing, don't we, facing frightening realities. A difficult world. A spiritual enemy called the devil. And the weakness and sin remaining in our own lives. Can you relate to those things? Can you relate to the first readers of this book? Banking on promises. Heading toward a land. But it's not easy. And so we wonder right here. Will God really bring us safely home? Well, this story, this true story, this story is here to, to strengthen your faith that you would leave here saying, yes, he will. And I want to walk through this story with you in three parts, three sections. Let's call the first section the kingdom problem. First section, let's call it the kingdom problem. This, 
sets the scene, as it were. You see, Genesis as a book begins with, begins with a, a tangible picture of God's kingdom. The very beginning, we've seen this already, think back months ago, there were God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the land, as it were, the Garden of Eden, under God's good rule, by His Word. So keep that in mind, that definition, that picture of God's kingdom. God's people in God's place, okay? God's people in God's place. But God's people threw off God's good rule. They rejected God's word. God had to remove them from his place, the Garden of Eden. And the rest of the Bible, in a very real sense, the rest of the Bible shows us God's plan of restoring his kingdom, you might say. Bringing back his people into his land under his good rule. That's where the entire Bible and your life is heading. But recall what we've seen. The people after Adam and Eve, well, they got worse and worse and worse. And so judgment came to all humanity through a great flood. One family was spared, the family of Noah. And God told, tells those survivors to spread out, to fill the earth, as it were, as image bearers, and, and in a sense, extend his kingdom. But they don't really do that. They defy God's will about spreading out. They come to a place called Babel, and they say, we're not spreading out anymore. <laughs> we're staying right here, and we're building a tower. That's Genesis 11. That's where we left off. People defying God, building a tower with the express motivation of, quote, making a name for ourselves. It is, it is the age-old human temptation to pursue the kingdom of me instead of the kingdom of God. That's our context as we pick up our passage in chapter 11, verse 27, with these are the generations of Terah. That's, that's a, a signal, a sign saying new section, new section in Genesis. Now we're going to talk about the family of this guy named Terah, and especially his son named Abram, whom we know as Abraham. So we're entering the Abraham section of Genesis. As a people, remember, as a people parked on the plains of Moab, about to enter the promised land called Canaan. And we, as that people here, we know Abraham is our ancestor. But there are a couple of problems here already with Father Abraham. He's supposed to be the standard bearer to reestablish God's kingdom. And we find in verse 28, he's living in Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was known for its moon worship. Yes, in verse 31, they journey as far as Haran. But Haran was also known for its moon worship, which may be why their migration stopped there. So basically, we've got a family of idolaters here, moon worshipers. And that's confirmed in Joshua 24, where Joshua says, Your fathers, living beyond the Euphrates River, worshipped, quote, other gods. They worshipped other gods. This is not the guy I would rebuild the kingdom with. Worshiping other gods, that's problem number one. Problem number two, to rebuild God's people in God's place, you need a people. But we are told here that Abram's 
wife Sarai, later Sarah, in verse 30, is barren, sadly. In case we miss the point, we're told again in that verse, quote, she had no child. So, so here's Father Abraham for us, supposed to be the standard bearer of God's kingdom. And he's in the wrong land, he's worshiping the wrong gods, and he's got no people. <laughs> That's the kingdom problem. That's the setting, the setting for what's about to take place. Now, before we go further, let's just personalize this a little bit. Because this setting is one of real personal pain for Abram and Sarai. Infertility was very shameful in this culture. I'm not saying it, it should have been, but it was. And so this is a time of great pain. Now, we know with the benefit of hindsight, this pain was a platform for what God would do in their lives. God would display his power through this situation of, of pain. But Abram doesn't know that yet. Sarai doesn't know that yet. They just know it's pain. It hurts. And only in hindsight will they be able to, be look, be able to look back and see what God had done. I just wonder if there is pain like that in your life right now. Some confusing, perplexing pain. It hurts, and it doesn't seem like it has any purpose. I, I trust one day you will look back and see something of what God was doing. We know he works all together for our good to conform us to the image of Jesus, but right now it's just pain. I think at a minimum we can say this, like Abram and Sarai, your situation, your setting as it were, has been sovereignly created by God to display his power, just like theirs was. We can be sure of that because 2 Corinthians 12 tells us that. The Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh, and Jesus says, my power is displayed through weakness. I'm not trying to minimize the pain. I just want to maximize your faith that God is at work through it. God is at work in your situation. And he might be displaying his power right now just to keep you going. You might be experiencing his power just to sustain you through it, friend. And he will keep you all the way to the end. That's what's going to happen, as we'll see in coming weeks. The story is set up with this kingdom problem. God is rebuilding his people in his place, and Abram is not a promising candidate. Wrong place, wrong gods, and no people. Is God done in the earth? Well, absolutely not. See, secondly, let's call them the covenantal promises. See, secondly, let's call them the covenantal promises. Now, the word covenant's not in this passage, but as we read forward in Genesis, we're going to find these promises are a, a basis for a, a covenant, as Joshua talked about, a, a solemn agreement a solemn agreement between Abram and, this, and, and his God. 
So let's call them covenantal promises. Let me read these again because they are so important. Verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, those are vital verses for Genesis and vital verses for the entirety of your Bible. Here we find promises to Abram himself, at least most directly, immediately to Abram, a promise of a land, a promise to make him into a great nation, people, and a promise to make his name great. Catch the contrast with the people in Babel building their tower. We're going to make ourselves great, make our name great. God says, Abram, I will make your name great as I build my kingdom. Thank you very much. There are promises also, you might say, to Abram's contemporaries in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you I will curse. How do you like that backing you up? God says, I got you. And then a promise that is worldwide in scope, as verse 3 continues. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Don't try this at home. In you, Abram, all families, all, all nations on the face of the planet will experience some blessing. All those nations, God is saying, all those nations in Genesis 11 that I just scattered, I confused their languages and I scattered them all at Babel in their tower building. All those nations I scattered, they will experience some blessing to come through you. And we know the name of that blessing. It's Jesus. He is the blessing to the nations. So these are, as you can tell, massively important promises. But I'm just going to focus here on the, the land promise mainly because this is a, a unit of the narrative, a unit of, of story, as it were, a true story, but a unit of the narrative. And the theme of land runs through the entire unit here. Remember the significance of that. The first recipients were about to invade this promised land. The same land. The promised land of Canaan. So catch the implications for them and for us today. God says repeatedly here in these verses, I will do this. I will, I will, I will. I will make this happen. God says, it's on me. But Abram has a part to play. He has to exchange the known for the unknown. Leave everything and go to a land, God says, that I will show you. That's no small thing. Go to a land, I'll let you know when you get there. Leave your extended family, which was unheard of, and do it all based on my promises. I mean, if you saw them, traveling through the desert toward this land that God was going to show them. If you saw them, they would just look like this pack of nomads journeying through the desert. Nothing unusual about them except the promises of God hidden in their hearts. Doesn't that sound like us? Ordinary people. Nothing to 
set us apart visually, journeying through this world, heading to a land with the promises of God hidden in our hearts. I mean, friends, you, in a real sense, you are the, the ultimate inheritor of these promises. You're hoping in that blessing to the nations named Jesus, and you're heading to a land he has promised you, this, this new heavens and new earth. God is bringing his people into his place. He is rebuilding his kingdom by these promises. So as Dr. Ian Duguid puts it so nicely, he said we must cling, cling to the promises of God and the God of the promises. That's what sets you apart. Cling, cling to the God of, cling to the, sorry, to, to the promises of God and the God of the promises. If you want a reason why we should study the rest of this book, that's the reason I would give you, that we would cling to the promises of God and cling to the God of the promises. But what's your hope in doing so as you travel through this world? A pilgrim to a land. What's going to undergird your faith in these covenantal promises? What's going to help you cling to the promises of God and the God of the promises? Well, thirdly, I think it's this, the triumph of grace. Thirdly, let's call it the triumph of grace. Verse 4, we read, So Abram went. As the Lord had told them, told him. And this is a lengthy journey. It's hundreds and hundreds of miles. And that journey of hundreds and hundreds of miles gets one verse. Okay? Abram went. One verse for the long, 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 long journey. Multiple verses for what Abram does when he gets to the land. Notice this, beginning in verse 5. When they came to the land of Canaan. So now he's in the land. Now he's in the promised land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this Land. I'm giving it to you and your offspring. So he, Abram, built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There, what did he do? Built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Did you notice what Abram's doing in the land? He's traveling around the land, building altars for worship of the true and living God. He's in Canaanite territory. You might say he's, he's on enemy ground, building altars for the true and living God. In verse 6, it's at the Oak of Morah, a kind of Canaanite shrine. We think it's for, was for soothsaying. In verse 8, he does it again, builds an altar to God, calls on his name. Abram is building these rival altars to, as it were, in effect, claim the land for the worship of the living God. I, I thought of it like, like the moon landing when the astronauts 
landed on the moon, they step out, and someone planted an American flag, that iconic image of an American flag planted on the moon. It's kind of like saying, here we are, we claim the moon. <laughs> We've been here. Or maybe better yet, maybe better, a better analogy is if you go to the Cabrillo National Monument in Point Loma, which I've taken my kids numerous times, they don't want to go anymore with Dad. Cabrillo landed there, first European to land in California. And if you go to the visitor center, you can watch a movie that reenacts Cabrillo's journey. And they show at points Cabrillo coming onto the beach and saying basically, boom, I claim this land for Spain. I plant the flag of Spain. I'm claiming all this land for Spain, which I just think is so silly looking. I don't know where I am. I am totally lost, but boom, this is for Spain. It's kind of like that right here in Genesis 12. Abram is going around planting flags for the kingdom of God. He's saying God's people are going to be in God's place under God's rule. Again, it, it's almost like the child dedications we're going to have soon. When parents will come up on this stage or the community center stage, one of those, and they basically will have their children and they'll say, God, I, I dedicate this child to God, to you. Abram's, in effect, doing that with the land. Now, think about the effect of this on us, the first readers in the plain of Moab trying to invade this same land. Us, this ragtag group, weak in ourselves, facing a mighty foe. And now we find, in effect, this land has already been dedicated to God centuries earlier. In effect, God used Abram to establish um, a beachhead for the kingdom. You might think of the, the D-Day landing when they established a beachhead in Normandy. Once that beachhead was successfully established, you might argue that victory, ultimate victory in Europe was assured, that beachhead assured of a promised victory. That's what this is like, God establishing a beachhead for the kingdom so that his people could be assured they could be certain he would bring them into the land. And notice, notice he would do so by the triumph of his grace. I mean, do you remember the problems, the kingdom problems here? Wrong land, wrong gods, and no people. That was Abram's situation. Yet we read in verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram. He's in Canaanite territory, the promised land. The Lord shows up. <laughs> the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give. I will give this land. It's almost as if God just wanted to be very clear. Abram, it's a gift. I am giving this to you. I'm giving it to your offspring. And in fact, 
the Apostle Paul looks to that verse in Galatians chapter 3 and says, Look, look, Galatians, these promises were to an offspring, singular. That means Jesus. <laughs> so Jesus is right here again in verse 7. To your offspring, God will give this land. We realize on this side of the cross, we experience the gift of the promised land through Jesus Christ and the grace he brings to us, do we not? Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that, that established a beachhead for the kingdom when he came the first time and a kingdom that will be perfected in the earth when he comes a second time. So grace triumphs here through Jesus Christ. The land is a gift and it all points to our Savior who triumphs by His grace. So I think, I think that's the takeaway, friends. To see and to hope in the triumph of God's grace. The triumph of His grace to bring us into the land. The triumph of His grace to fulfill all His purposes for His people. To bring a people into His place under His good rule. That's going to happen by the triumph of His grace. You might put it this way. God triumphs by His grace through His promises to bring us safely into His kingdom. He's going to triumph by His grace through these covenantal promises to bring us safely home. This passage was to inspire that confidence in the first readers and do the same for you and me. God's going to bring you safely home. And don't we need that assurance? I was talking to a friend Tuesday morning who is in Illinois and he's dying. And I've known him for about 21 years. He was part of planting a church together. And he could only get out a few words at a time. He was struggling to breathe. I had just read Acts 14 that, mo that morning where, where the Apostle Paul says, through many tribulations, through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many challenges, through many difficulties, like my friend was going through. So I said to him on the phone, Jack, Jack, I read this verse and I thought of you. Through these tribulations, through these trials, you're going to enter the fullness of the kingdom of God in Christ. Don't we need that assurance? Tribulations come, the trials come, the difficulties come, and you're going to wonder, am I really going to make it home? Will God's grace really triumph in my life to bring me safely home? Well, think about with me the kingdom beachhead. Think about with me the, the triumph of grace you've already experienced. Charles Spurgeon, the, the 19th century prince of preachers, he's called, he, he realized the triumph of, his, of God's grace in his life like this. He said, when I was coming to Christ, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. 
And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. And then he says one night, one night, the thought struck him. How did you become a Christian? He thought. I sought the Lord, he said. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. Well, I prayed. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? Well, I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. Well, how came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, he says, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And then he says this, I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Isn't he saying... I ascribe my whole change, my whole salvation to the triumph of God's grace. Well, that's your, that's your experience if you're a Christian. You've already experienced this triumph personally. Yes, you sought God, perhaps. You prayed. You may have read the scriptures. But friends, God was at the bottom of it all. He's the author of your faith. You are... You are like Abram, the former moon worshiper, a trophy of the triumph of his grace. Now, here's my question for you. If grace has brought you here thus far, what will grace yet do? If grace has already triumphed in your life in that sense, what will grace yet accomplish? It is like the hymn puts it, "'Tis grace that brought me here thus far, and grace will lead me home." That's the assurance you should have this evening. Grace has brought me here thus far. Grace will lead me into that promised heavenly land one day. Oh yes, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Oh yes, through many difficulties. Oh yes, through many challenges. And yes, sometimes much pain. But if grace has brought you here thus far, brothers and sisters, grace is going to lead you home. Grace is going to take you into the land. Just like we find being foreshadowed for us right here in Genesis chapter 12. So bank, friends, bank on the triumph of God's grace. Cling. Cling to the promises of God and cling to the God of the promises. He will bring you home. He will bring you all the way, carrying you successfully to the end. That was God's message to his frightened people on the plains of Moab. And that's God's message to his frightened people right now. Bank on the triumph of his grace through these, these sure covenantal promises 
to bring you safely home. And to celebrate that, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. So would the music team please come? And those who are going to serve us can prepare to do so. For those perhaps here who've yet to trust in Jesus, we are so glad you're here. You're in the right place. Thank you for coming. And we invite you, we urge you to, to take Christ, to cling to Christ by faith. This supper is for those who've already believed. So we ask you to cling to Jesus, to take Christ instead, who, who lived and died and rose to bring you to himself, to to turn from going your own way then and to trust in these promises for your own life. To hope in these promises of salvation, these promises of, of rescue, these promises of forgiveness, these promises that, that take away your shame because of Jesus and will bring you into the land that give you a sure hope and a future. I urge you this evening, come to Christ even now believing. For those who've already believed on Jesus Christ, we invite you to the table.